Good morning, Hope Church. Great to be with you today, as always, and to be bringing God's Word to you. If you've got your Bible to hand, please turn to Exodus chapter 7. Um, I've only been given four chapters to cover today, (laughs) so we're going to have to be selective. And I'm thrilled that we're going to be finishing with with communion. I'm just going to begin by reading a couple of verses from Colossians 1. And uh, Jamie, who's on the presentation, is just going to have to bear with me this morning because (laughs) we might not be following the presentation very closely. I feel like the Lord wants to really impress upon us today the hope and the confidence we can have this morning in what Christ has done for us at the cross. So I am thrilled that we're having communion shortly. Let's just listen to these words from Colossians chapter 1. For in him... That is, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Hallelujah. As elders, we came to settle upon this teaching series, which we've entitled God-Centered Community. Coming out of COVID in two years of not being able to gather and recognizing the pressures and the challenges upon each of us to know what does it mean to really belong and to be a part of the church and of a community. We recognized that for many, we felt quite disconnected. And so that was the heart going into this teaching series. You want to really, and we have been teaching into what it means for us to be God's people, centering ourselves upon our God. And Steve settled upon Exodus and a series in Exodus to help us think these things through. And I think it's been very helpful so far. But in the sovereignty of God, when somehow it seems like his agenda is slightly different to ours, that he has something that he wants to speak to his people. Yes, he wants to speak to us about being a God-centered community. Yes, he wants to speak to us about what it means to belong to a church and the, the role you and I have to play in it. But it's interesting to me that at a time when the the eyes of the world are upon an evil, wicked leader trying to dominate and overwhelm and oppress and impose his might and his authority, it seems very interesting to me that we're going through the book of Exodus and we're considering an evil, wicked man leading a regime to oppress and persecute a nation. It seems that in the sovereignty of God, we as a church are being given the opportunity to think about what it means to be a God-centered community, but to think as well about how it is our God deals with evil in this world. And one of the mistakes that we can very easily make is to think that our warfare is against flesh and blood, but it's not. Our battle is not against Vladimir Putin. 
Our battle is not against men and women who make terrible decisions. It's not flesh and blood. It's the principalities and powers. There's a spiritual battle that we are engaged in today. And if you know your history, you know that history has a habit of repeating itself. And so we get to this moment and we're like, how is this happening again? We tell our children stories of former wars and evil dictators. And we tell our children these stories and we think it's, we're not likely to ever see something like this again. And then I'm sure you're having these conversations. What is going on? Why is this happening? And then for the people of God who believe in these words of Scripture, we have to take a moment to stand back and realize that what is written here is true. So when Jesus says before he returns, there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars and there will be earthquakes and famines and there will be sickness and there will be disease. He didn't lie when he said those things. One of the challenges we have is that a lot of our life is, is pleasant and comfortable and nice and good. And then suddenly it's punctuated and interrupted by COVID, by sickness, by cancers, by the death of loved ones, by broken relationships, by racism, by bullying, by intimidation, by theft, punctuated by natural disasters, by conflicts, by wars. And we ask the question of God as his people, why is this happening? Why, Lord? And Exodus begins, and God says to Moses, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard their cries. I've seen their persecution. I've seen their pain. And I'm going to step in. So we shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. Jesus said, don't be surprised. But we can be very encouraged. What's, what's the hope? I'm off camera now. What's the hope? What's the hope for this world? What's the hope for the conflicts that happen in the world today? What's the hope when we are dealing with hatred and evil and wickedness? What's the answer? What's God's answer? What's God's response? What has God done about it? What will God do about it? What intervention will God make? What is God's response? And this is our sign. And this is our symbol. And this is what our Lord would have us today remember. That at the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame, taking their weapons out of their hands. At the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. At the cross, Jesus defeats sin and death once and for all. At the cross. This is our sign. This is our symbol. This is the evidence that you and I need to have that it won't end in 
the evil one having the glory, but ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. We can't ignore what's happening in the world around us, and we mustn't, and God's people must pray. And an evidence of our faith, an evidence of our confidence in God to bring deliverance is seen in how we pray as his people. We're going to be praying tonight. We're going to be praying for conflicts. And I want to encourage you to join us tonight. We will give you the details shortly. Why don't we just pray together? Father, I thank you so much that you've not put a spirit of fear into our hearts, but of sonship. I thank you that your son has accomplished the greatest victory of all. Lord, forgive us when we look to solutions outside of the cross of Christ for peace in this world. And I pray strengthen our our faith today, our confidence in him, embolden us. I thank you that you hear the cries of your people. Your ear is not too deaf to hear, nor is your arm too short to save. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, to reach out your hands. You are the giver of peace. You are the one that brings reconciliation. And I pray, help us, help me, Lord, as we bring your word today. Have your way amongst us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. In us is a, is a vision, isn't it? In each of us, we have this sense of the world should be better than it is. It needn't be like this. Why is it like this? It needn't be like this. You carry that. You give your, every day, you're, you're living your day to try and make the world better. Your world better, your environment better. You go to work You go to the office, you want to do a good job, you want to make a difference in that environment because you've got a vision of how the world could be better. And I want to encourage you in that and not to be disheartened or discouraged or disillusioned to keep going and keep living each day with that vision. We need to make a difference in our world and we can. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. When God called Moses, he was intimidated initially. He was afraid. Do you blame him? And God said, I'm going to do something wonderful. Let's read the first few verses of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like Pharaoh, like God to Pharaoh, sorry. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. That's worth taking notes of. We want an army of 80-year-olds to rise up and lead us. 
Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And I just want to finish reading at that point. We'll continue in a moment. God lays before Moses and Aaron the plan. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to display my power. It's going to be an almighty display of power, and he's not going to listen. But I'm still going to lead my people out. So he's given them, he's given them the headlines, essentially, of what's going to take place. Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened. He's going to resist. He's going to deny you what you ask for. And then he's going to want you to uh, prove that your God is the true God by signs. He's going to ask you for a sign. He's going to want to have some kind of proof that you are sent by God. And, and that desire, prove this for, us, for a sign. Uh, people want that today. I want to see some evidence. Show me some evidence. Give me a sign. Prove. Prove it. Prove that your God is the true God. This is ultimately what the battle is all about. Whose God is God? Who's the true God? Who's the real God at the end of the day? This is the conflict. What we are seeing in the world today is nothing new. From, from the point of Genesis 3 onwards, there has been a conflict. Good versus evil. Light versus darkness. Love versus hate. Christ versus Satan. A kingdom of light versus a kingdom of darkness. There's been a conflict. And the powers of darkness have used all kinds of instruments in order to put forward their agenda and their purposes. This isn't new, what's happening in the world today. And you and I know it in our own hearts, conflict as well, between being led by the Spirit and being led by the flesh. Give me a sign, prove that your God is the true God. Let's carry on reading. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Why do you think God chose a snake to be the first sign? Have you wondered? Have you thought about that? Why would he choose a snake? Why would he choose a serpent? Have you ever asked that question of God, why do you do it this way? Why are you working in this way? I wouldn't do it like this, Lord. It's not how I would do it. So when he does things in particular ways, our responsibility is to step back and go, okay, Lord, teach me what you're doing. 
Help me see, what you're, help me understand what you're doing. So for us, as we're reading the scriptures, we get lots of help. We get commentaries. We get teachers to help us with this. Why does he cast the staff down and it becomes a serpent? Well, in the Egyptian world, the snake, the cobra, was feared. This poisonous, venomous snake that bites and that kills. If you've seen Tutankhamun's death mask, on the front of it is a cobra, is a female cobra at the top. It signifies power, it signifies fear, and it signifies death. In the context of Egypt, um, there were few animals that had the same uh, sense of fear in that nation as the snake did, as the cobra did. Remarkably, it was also worshipped. This snake, this cobra, fear, death, and worship. And it's amazing how Satan will do this. He will use fear and power to overwhelm people to worship. And so for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh, as the staff is cast down and becomes a serpent and a snake, immediately what he is seeing is, ah, this is about power. This is about authority. This is about gods. And we've got our gods, so we're going to fight back. And so he summons the magicians and he gets the sorcerers. And they have their staffs. And you think, surely, because they don't have the real God, when they throw their staffs down, they'll just bounce around and splinter. But what happens? They turn into snakes. And you think, hang on, they're the baddies. They're the, they're the bad guys. What? What, how have they got power? And this is where we have to just be very wise. The reality is that Satan and the powers of darkness are able to perform signs, are able to manipulate the created world to deceive. Now, Satan can't create, but he can manipulate and he can distort and he can deceive so the staffs are thrown down, they become snakes straight away. Now, as Christians who long to see evidences of the power of God through signs and wonders, we have to be very careful that we don't get duped by signs into thinking that just because this is a display of power and of a sign that this must be of God. What's the true test? Well, Satan cannot stir in anyone love for God. Satan cannot stir in anyone a willingness to follow Christ. You have to test these things. Jesus said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Satan can replicate God's signs. This is what's taking place here. This from the word go, is a conflict, is a battle, is a fight. Fleming Rutledge, um, who's one of my favorite authors and theologians, she's written an incredible book called The Crucifixion. An incredible book. She speaks about the powers of darkness in this in such a helpful way. If you, if you enjoy good theological read, I'd recommend Fleming Rutledge, The Crucifixion. It's hard work. But I've probably, it's probably my favorite book of the last 10 years. She says this. In Jesus Christ, 
The kingdom of God is in a head-on collision with the powers of darkness. The point of impact is the place where Christians take their stand. That's why it hurts. Do you know what it's like to take a stand for Christ? And that point of conflict, when you're, you're speaking in a way which is different to everyone else in the room, when decisions are being made that you know on conscience go against God's word, when you're in an environment where someone is being put down, where someone is being abused and you make a stand, at that moment, conflict. When you're ethically working in your office and, and others are working in a different way and getting an advantage and you're feeling the temptation to mirror that and you're going to go, no, I stand on the word of God and I will not give myself over to compromise. Conflict. She's saying the kingdom of God is directly opposed. The kingdom of Christ is directly opposed. And from the moment these staffs are cast down, there is this conflict as these snakes come against each other. And every passage of scripture reveals this. But look at the significance of verse 12. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Don't ignore that. I just would love to see it. All of these serpents and all these snakes. The, the Hebrew word could also be translated as crocodile. So some, some commentators would say that the Hebrew word used for Aaron's staff, it's not a serpent, it's actually a crocodile that, that swallows up the snakes. That the, that the, but we don't know for sure. Either way, the, the issue is whose God is more powerful? Whose God is more powerful? Who wins? Who wins this battle? Who wins this fight? Which God is proven through the sign? And the theological significance of this across the whole scriptures can't be overstated. We go right back to Genesis 3. The deceiver, the snake, the serpent. And God pronounces a curse. And he says, from the seed of woman will come one. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. One's coming. He's going to get hurt. You're going to inflict a, an injury upon him, but he's going to inflict a mortal blow upon you. He's going to strike you. And the significance of the death of Jesus Christ in that, this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 15, think about the serpents. Death is swallowed up. In victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the death of Christ, sin and Satan are swallowed up, consumed, dealt with. Here we have right at the beginning before all the plagues come and we're given this picture of what ultimately God is going to do. He's going to swallow up the serpents. I've got a quote from Charles Spurgeon uh, which should appear on the screen that I want to read. Whenever a divine thing is cast into the heart or thrown upon the earth, 
it swallows up everything else. And though the devil may fashion a counterfeit and produce swarms of opponents, as sure as ever God is in the work, it will swallow up all its foes. This is a picture of how God works in the grand scheme of things. We are eagerly awaiting the moment when all sin, all darkness, all pain, all wars end. And they will surely. But the beginnings of this new creation which is being made have started in our hearts. So that truly God swallows up sin in our lives. Swallows up conflict. As you go through these chapters, you find over and over again, it's a heart issue that the Lord is dealing with. It's the heart of Pharaoh that gets harder and harder and harder. And it's the heart that God wants to deal with and to expose. He ultimately swallows up evil. That's what the cross is all about. Death is swallowed up. Hallelujah. I haven't got the time to go through all of the plagues that we encounter We have boils, we have hail, we have flies, we have gnats, we have locusts, we have darkness. And then we have the final plague. Let me ask you a question. How would you like God to deal with you? Justly or mercifully? Which would you choose? For yourself, do you want justice? Do you want mercy? What about Pharaoh? What do you want for Pharaoh? Justice or mercy? If you were to ask the parents of the children who are murdered by Pharaoh, what do you want for Pharaoh? Justice or mercy? What do you want? Putin. Justice or mercy? Who gets mercy and why? Why am I entitled to mercy where someone else is entitled to justice? What would you do if you were God? How do you think of a God that gives everyone justice? How do you think of a God who gives everyone mercy? What causes you the greater problem? Because there is a problem. Isn't there? I've not suffered great pain in my life, relatively. I know some of you have suffered horribly and are at the moment. And if you've been the victim of abuse and persecution, which cruelly so many have, this question is very, very powerful and it's in trying to reconcile that tension and if we don't understand that tension we cannot understand the cross do you want justice or do you want mercy every time these plagues come it begins with an appeal to Pharaoh it says let my people go Over and over again, plague after plague after plague. Is this God toying with Pharaoh? Is this God being cruel to Pharaoh? 
God doesn't just wipe him out and kill him. Wouldn't that have been just the easiest thing to have done right at the beginning? He's working in this mysterious way, and he's revealing something significant the whole time. In Romans 9, we've got the text. I'm just going to read Romans 9 quickly to us. He says to to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, this is in Exodus 9, that I might show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's difficult to read. What Paul is saying is God decides who he has mercy on. So he has mercy on the Israelites and he he leads them out of Egypt. And yet plagues come on the Egyptians. Is that fair? Why did he treat the Israelites in this way? Were the Israelite nations, so his precious chosen people, were they better than all the other nations? They were just as evil, just as corrupt, just as wicked. Why did he choose them? Because he's merciful and he chose to have grace. Justice would have had everyone wiped out. And yet he chooses to be merciful. And he shows mercy to Pharaoh. Really? He does. When the hail comes, he says to Pharaoh, make sure you bring your servants in. Make sure you bring your cattle in. Make sure you, 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 you come out of the hail because anyone that's out there is going to die. He says this to Pharaoh. And then it says those that feared the word of the Lord brought their cattle in and their servants in. And those who didn't died. There's an old Puritan saying that goes like this. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And we can preach the gospel till we're blue in the face. And I know many of you are pleading for loved ones, children, brothers, sisters, friends. You're praying, Lord, please, would you bring them back to you? And you're sharing the gospel over and over again. And you feel, I can't, why can't I get through? The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. God's mercy hasn't failed. It says that, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There was an intentional, willful decision of Pharaoh to harden his heart and to reject God's word. And the plagues kept coming. C.S. Lewis says this in his brilliant book, The Problem of Pain. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The plagues were a megaphone. What was the message? That the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is God. That the world, that the nations would know that there is one God, only one. And in a time of pain and difficulty and suffering, The megaphone is being heard in our world. 
Where do you go and where do you turn? Isn't it amazing how many people are posting, praying for the Ukraine? To whom are you praying? Do you know this God? Do you know what this God has done? Do you know what this God has done? Who didn't consider, Jesus Christ didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing. Became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him. Given him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess. That he is Lord. That's what happens. Ultimately every single person the Bible says will confess. Jesus Christ you're God. You are God. And our longing and our desire is that God is proven in people's lives, not through judgment, but through mercy. And the word of God says, mercy triumphs over justice. So we can be confident that many are going to come to to receive God's mercy, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. The story of the Egyptians is a difficult one. The story of Pharaoh is a difficult one. But ultimately what you and I have to realize is that God's greater goal in the world is to glorify himself. And he has chosen to glorify himself through the cross, through coming, through dying, through suffering, to show his mercy to us that we might receive his forgiveness. And I'm going to finish by just reading from Romans 11. The Apostle Paul through Romans has been teaching about the gospel. He's been teaching about how it brings reconciliation across the world. He's been explaining God's purposes through the people of Israel. How this nation is used for us in an analogous way to to describe how God's working through all nations and through our lives. How he's leading us out of slavery. How he's bringing us to a promised land. How he's he's one day going to lead us into heaven in glory. And I love how he just bursts out in this great cry. He says the following. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And notice verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We might not necessarily feel like we represent the masses that will be before the throne of God. But the achievement of the gospel is going to be far greater than we can ever imagine or realize. Why don't we stand? Around the world today, millions of people are taking the bread and the wine. And millions of people are praying, Father in heaven, let the peace that your son has achieved at the cross work its way across this world. And that's our prayer today. That just as we've been reconciled to God, he would bring reconciliation in this world of conflict. Our confidence isn't ultimately in democracy Our confidence isn't ultimately in negotiations of politicians, though we're grateful for them and we pray for favor on those conversations. Our confidence is in God's 
defeat of sin, death, and evil at the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your son's death swallowed up death. I thank you that you've defeated sin and evil once and for all. And our prayer, Lord, in this world that is in conflict is that the peace of Christ would reign supremely, that you would work a miracle in ending wars and conflicts. We pray in our own lives, in our own situations where we've got the opportunity to point to this reconciliation, Lord, help us to do so. Help us to be brave, to be bold, to be courageous. We thank you for those two 80-plus-year-olds that went in faith, that you used them in their old age. And Lord, would you, none of us is disqualified. You use all of us. Help us, Lord, to point to this sign of the cross, this sign of Jonah, this death and resurrection of your son, and our confidence is in you. Amen.